Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. In 1999, two sisters in Mesa, Arizona were playing outside and enjoying what was left of their winter break. What was an innocent time playing together outside would turn into the family's worst nightmare when the oldest sister went missing in 90 seconds. This is the story of Mikkel Biggs. Mikkel Biggs was born May 31st, 1987 in San Antonio, Texas. She was subsequently raised by her parents, Darren and Tracy, in Mesa, Arizona. Now, here's a little bit about Mesa. It is considered a large suburb of Phoenix in Arizona's Valley of the Sun. It's home to over 500,000 people today. And a fun fact is that Mesa actually has the largest population in the U.S. of a city that doesn't have a major downtown area. It's actually Arizona's third largest city, preceded by Phoenix and Tucson, Mesa is also known for its large LDS population or Mormon community, and Mikkel and her family were a part of that community. Mikkel and her siblings did go to school in this community, and they attended Lindbergh Elementary School right there in Mesa, Arizona. At Lindbergh, Mikkel was pretty active. She was on the student council, and she actually played the clarinet there. Mikkel's father, Darren, was a supervisor at a manufacturing company, while her mother, Tracy Biggs, stayed home with Mikkel and her three siblings. Mikkel was the oldest, and she was followed by her sister, Kimber, her brother, Nathan, and their youngest baby sister, Linnell. The Biggs family had a beautiful life in Mesa, and Darren recalls that the family's living situation and the neighborhood were very middle class and very safe and run-of-the-mill, if you will. Mikkel's brother Nathan recalls playing games with his siblings in the back of their station wagon, like I Spy and any other road trip type games that you can think of. While growing up in the community, Kimber remembers everybody loving Mikkel and that she herself, as her little sister, just loved playing with her and being around her. She felt that Mikkel was the, quote, cool big sister, end quote, and she just really, really looked up to her. Tracy expresses some really special insight about her daughter Mikkel as well. She tells viewers of People Investigates that Mikkel was, quote, beyond her years smart, end quote, and 
painted a picture of a very goal-oriented little girl. One of those goals that Mikkel had was to grow up and become a Disney animator. And this is at no surprise because Mikkel had an artsy side. She really enjoyed things like sketching and other types of art. So it really makes sense why she'd want to be a Disney animator. Another really sweet fact about Mikkel is that her favorite color was purple. And that just hit me a bit hard because that's always been my favorite color too. So I really felt a little bit connected with Mikkel there. And Mikkel is the same age as us. So this story hits close to home. It just resonates so differently because we can put ourselves in this time of growing up, just like Mikkel and Kimber were. Now, as I mentioned, Mesa has quite a large LDS or Mormon community. And so it's no surprise, especially with Mikkel's family being part of this community, that their neighborhood was largely populated by fellow Mormon ward members. With those feelings of safety and security aside, when the children would play outside, especially Kimber and Mikkel, the older two, they had certain limits. They were allowed to go from one end of the street to the other. And there were street lights that marked their little barriers. Now, we have to remember, it's 1999 when this case takes place. And as Natalie mentioned, Mikkel isn't much older than Natalie and me. And we grew up similarly to this, being able to play outside until the streetlights came on. And I'm sure that many of our fellow millennials and older listeners um, can relate to this freedom of being a child, playing in pairs or groups, and being able to play outside again until those streetlights came on. That's exactly what Kimber and Mikkel were doing on Saturday, January 2nd, 1999. Nine-year-old Kimber and 11-year-old Mikkel were simply playing outside and they were enjoying the weekend. It was the first weekend of the new year and they were still on winter break. Although, yes, it was coming to an end soon, uh, but they were soaking up of what was left of their winter break and what was left of that day before dinner. It was starting to get a little bit closer to dinner time, but that's when they heard it, an ice cream truck in the distance. Mikkel and Kimber got really excited when they heard the ice cream truck and they ran inside to get some money for some ice cream. Their mom was okay with it and gave them some quarters and then the two girls headed back out and they waited for the ice cream truck and they were actually just waiting about four houses down. It was at the end of the street and it was within those boundaries that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, And they were hoping that the ice cream truck would be coming down their street really soon because it was sounding close. Kimber walked to that corner while Mikkel rode on Kimber's new bike that she had just gotten for Christmas. Kimber recalls that they continued to hear the ice cream truck music, but it wasn't getting any closer, not since they had gone inside to get their quarters. It just seemed like the truck was keeping at the same distance and the music at the same volume. After a while, Kimber started getting a little bit restless, though. Remember, she's nine, and this truck, it just doesn't seem like it's coming. So she tells Mikkel, I want to go in. I'm getting cold. She's a bit restless. And so she decides, I'm going to go in. Are you coming with me? Mikkel says, no, I'm going to stay out here. And that's exactly what happened. So Kimber walks back the four doors down to their house and she goes inside. She expresses a quick frustration that the ice cream truck was taking too long. But their mom, Tracy, took a look at the time and it was 5.55 by this time. So she says, look, don't leave Mikkel out there by herself. Tell her it's time to come in for dinner. Give up on the ice cream truck. Tell her she needs to come back inside, please. So 
Kimber was not exactly excited about that task because she had just come back inside, right? Remember, she had been chilly and a little restless and she didn't want to be outside anymore, but she did do it. She turned right back around and walked to the end of their driveway to call for Mikel, the four doors up. However, when she got to the end of the driveway and called for her, she couldn't see Mikel. And then she noticed something in the street. It was her bike. It was laying in the street and the back tire was still spinning. Kimber recalls further that the scene felt immediately eerie to her. The streetlights were on now. The night sky was setting in deeper and no one else was around. Kimber says in an interview that she didn't exactly understand the situation or what she was looking at when she was only nine years old, of course, but she had that intuition. She felt, as she put it, uncomfortable. So obviously, once she notices that Mikkel was nowhere to be found and her bike was in the road, she ran back inside to go get her mom. Tracy goes back out with Kimber to where the bike is and they call for Mikkel some more, but it quickly set in that something was not right. And so they call the police. They call Mikkel's father, Darren, too, who was actually, according to him, working that Saturday. He drove home immediately. Um, Police patrol arrived as well, and a search began, and so did interviews. They talked to Tracy and Kimber, and the neighborhood was covered in police activity. Loudspeakers were going off, and they were letting neighbors know that they were looking for Mikkel. As I mentioned, Darren left where he was immediately, and he arrived home shortly after the police activity had already begun. Something notable about this day and why it was extra, extra eerie outside, I'm sure, is that there was a big American football game going on between the Cardinals and the Dallas Cowboys. And the Cardinals are Mesa's almost kind of home team, if you will. Um, And again, they were playing against Dallas Cowboys. So this was a huge game. And most people were either at the game or inside their homes watching it. Sergeant Kevin Baggs was actually even at the games uh, when a fellow colleague got the call about Mikkel being a missing child. Neighbors started their own search party aside from law enforcement's. And meanwhile, law enforcement assigned its top detectives to the case. These detectives had a lot of experience finding missing children. What these detectives found at the scene wasn't a lot. They had the bike that Mikkel was riding in the street as well as the two quarters that Mikkel had had with her. It wasn't for lack of effort, but 24 hours later, detectives still couldn't find any witnesses. And now a word from today. As I mentioned, there was that big football game going on at the time, so most of the neighbors were not paying attention to what was going on outside. The only lead the detectives had is that Mikkel and Kimber heard the ice cream truck and that they had been waiting for that ice cream truck. So they figure, you know what? It's time to investigate this ice cream truck some more. So Sergeant Baggs says that they spoke with every ice cream truck owner in the Phoenix area at one point or another during this investigation. All of the ice cream truck owners said they weren't working in the area. Again, there was a big football game and it was sort of a holiday weekend being that the new year had just happened. Let's remember, Kimber had said it sounded like the ice cream truck wasn't getting any closer, like it was staying in one area. So this made investigators wonder, could someone have been attempting to lure children by playing ice cream truck type music? Almost as if someone was lying in wait. 
bingo. And that's why they begin to look at registered sex offenders in the area. According to Detective Jerry Gissel, who worked the case, there were actually a couple dozen registered sex offenders within a mile radius of the Biggs family home. While they're looking into those registered sex offenders, they also revisit the scene to see if they can find any more clues. One of the detectives explains to People Investigates that the scene seemed to tell a story. And that story was that Mikkel was biking towards home, but dropped her quarters and bike to start running. Perhaps she was running away from someone. Perhaps she was being pulled into a car. Detective Gissel goes on to explain that he doesn't think anyone would have been able to just walk up or pull her down the street very far without anyone hearing her screaming. And that's why he thinks that they dragged her into a car pretty quickly. In effort to get a picture of what might have happened even more, police have Kimber show them exactly what happened that evening. They decided to time her. They timed her as she retraced her steps that she took from walking home from that corner they were waiting for the ice cream truck on to when she got home, turned around and walked back to the driveway to call for Mikkel. The time was 90 seconds, one minute and one half. Whatever happened to Mikkel happened fast. That's chilling. Bone chilling. And you know what? It made detectives feel that someone must have been watching, which is even more chilling. You can imagine that this freaked the public out too. They were frightened beyond belief. And as time crept on with no suspect being apprehended, that only added to the public's fear. Of course, they're looking at each and every one of their neighbors wondering who's responsible. It could be anyone. Which put even more pressure on law enforcement to find who did it. A vigil was organized to honor Mikkel and to keep this pressure on law enforcement and the public and the media to keep Mikkel's story in the spotlight. Now, the police, of course, were interested in who might be in attendance at this vigil. So they went ahead and they kind of secretly surveilled the crowd that was present at this vigil. They wanted to see, you know, could we find anything or anybody that's off? And as we know from much of our true crime consumption, that oftentimes perpetrators that haven't been apprehended yet will revisit the scene and or involve themselves in the searches and vigils like this. But in this case, nothing necessarily looked super amiss or stood out at the vigil. However, here's something that did stick out to law enforcement, though. Mikkel's dad's alibi wasn't checking out. Remember, his alibi was that he was at work when Mikkel went missing. His workplace tells law enforcement that, yes, he was here that Saturday, but he left at 2 p.m. So police questioned Darren about this, and he submitted to a polygraph. Well, deception was detected. Now, we know that polygraph is a bit of a pseudoscience, but there is also something to it. So we'll leave it at that. But deception was detected. When confronted about the deception being detected, Darren got so upset and so angry that he flipped the table over in the interrogation room or wherever they were talking, and he left the building. That's quite a visceral response from someone whose daughter's missing and didn't even react that way when he got the news about that. With it being that visceral, red flags were going off everywhere, and the media popped off about this new case update too. You can imagine that Darren was under a lot of pressure during this time, and that pressure caused him to come clean, and he changes his alibi. 
He says, okay, I wasn't at work when Mikkel went missing, like I said, but that new alibi wasn't too pretty. It turns out that Darren was having an extramarital affair with a woman in nearby Chandler, Arizona. The woman that Darren cheated on Tracy with was interviewed by law enforcement. And she says that Darren left her site only for a short time that evening, and it was to pick up some burgers. And he left to do so around 545. So he goes, he picks up the burgers, and then he comes back to her house with the burgers. And that's when his pager went off, which was Mikkel's mom trying to get a hold of him, which, remember, she thought she was paging him while he was at work. It gets worse. Darren had been taking Mikkel and her siblings to spend time with him, the girlfriend, and the girlfriend's children. This woman goes on further to say that Mikkel was pretty outspoken and was not happy with what was going on. She obviously wouldn't be okay with her dad cheating on her mom and having the pressure of keeping that secret. It's horrible. So the woman says that she expressed to Darren that she had concerns Mikkel would never accept her. His response to her, don't worry, I'll take care of Mikkel. Detective Gissel says that when he got a load of this side of the story, it made him feel like, quote, we may have a situation here that we really need to investigate, end quote. They wanted to know just that. They wanted to know, did Darren get rid of Mikkel so he could be with his girlfriend more easily? They have the girlfriend help them find out. They say, look, let's pull a confession out of him. Um, you're going to call him and you're going to try and see if you can't pull that confession out of him. At the time of this phone call that they have to try and see if she can't get him to confess, detectives were outside of his home as well. Darren got so mad and so upset when the girlfriend was questioning him about having anything to do with Mikkel's disappearance that he got in his car and started driving around town super fast, like 70, 80 miles an hour. And he was blasting through red lights and he was trying to get away from the detectives that he figured out were following him. That didn't stop them from continuing to question him, though, and he never caved on his innocence. Detectives decide to test out his timeline as well. They physically drive from the girlfriend's house to his house, where he would have had to have gone to take Mikkel, and then they drive to the restaurant where he got the burgers and back to the girlfriend's house. Now, the girlfriend's house was 10 or 15 minutes away from the Biggs' home, and Detective Gissel says if you drive fast, that maybe he could have done the physical drive to and from the two houses and the burger joint. But the piece that's missing is the time that would have been needed to possibly murder and hide Mikkel's body. The timeline and also the idea that Mikkel's quarters show that she was running towards home away from somebody pointed that that somebody was probably something she didn't know yet, not her dad. So the law enforcement decides, for now, we're going to put the Darren theory to rest. And Obviously, we need to acknowledge here that this was a very painful detour for the whole family, no doubt. But luckily, tips kept coming in. Sergeant Bags tells People Investigates that he, quote, doesn't know if we ever had a case that generated so many tips, end quote. Not all of those tips led to anything, though, unfortunately. And Darren recalls that this time was a constant roller coaster and took a huge toll on the family. Uh, Sister Kimber recalls of this time that it was, quote, brutal and hell on our family, end quote. So obviously they were going through it. 
Mikkel's case was unfortunately nearing danger of going cold when a neighbor of the Biggs family, just two blocks from where Mikkel was abducted from, was beaten by an intruder. Another neighbor, who we will call D, had broken into her home, hid behind the refrigerator, and when she came home, he was, well, exposing and being inappropriate with himself, if you know what I mean, and then he sexually assaulted her and beat her. While beating her, he made sure to kick her with his steel-toed boots. After the attack, Dee put a pizza box on the stove and attempted to use that to start a fire. The smoke from that attempted arson is what prompted an additional neighbor to call police and then thus find the woman. The woman did survive this brutal attack, and she really feels that Dee could be the one that took Mikkel. Dee was arrested for this attack, and investigators looked further into him. They discover that he was in attendance at the candlelight vigil that was held for Mikkel. Now remember, investigators were surveilling this vigil. That included videotaping it. On these videos, there's Dee piping up. He says, quote, If you're my neighbor, I'm living next to you, and I see something suspicious going on, I guarantee you I'm calling 911, end quote. And you can also see this video on the episode of People Investigates that I included in our resources, which are in the show notes. The irony of him advocating for neighbor safety is ridiculous. It's ironic in the most disgusting way, given that he attacked that neighbor. Law enforcement comes to find out that that other neighbor wasn't the only one that Dee had harmed before. Dee was a convicted sex offender. He had three previous convictions for sexual assault, kidnapping, and child molestation. What's more is he lived across the street from the house where Mikkel took her piano lessons and only a few doors down from one of Mikkel's best friends. So this made them wonder, could he have had his eyes on her? If you remember, we talked about how they were looking into these registered sex offenders that were in that mile radius of the Bigs' home. And... Sure enough, he was on their radar and they did interview him. Um, and they actually had questioned him only about four hours after Mikkel had been abducted. They had gone into his home and they questioned him and his wife. And during this questioning, the wife says that, you know, Dee was in the garage the whole time um, and was in there when Mikkel would have been abducted. She seemed nervous to Detective Gissel during this questioning, though. And so now that Dee was in custody, they decided, hey, let's go back and let's pay the wife another visit. Maybe she'll feel safer talking to us without Dee present. Come to find out when they questioned her again, she had never gone out to the garage while she thought that Dee was out there. Basically, before he went into the garage, he had been cruel to her that day and he made it clear that he didn't want her going out there while he was out there. This totally changes Dee's alibi. From 5.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m., Dee's whereabouts are technically unknown, and law enforcement wants to know where he was. It's also discovered that Dee and his wife had a storage shed a block away from their house. Police went ahead and searched it, but they didn't find any evidence of Mikkel being there. But you know what? There was plenty of time by the time they got to search it for Dee to have cleaned up the shed and removed anything that would have shown or evinced that Mikkel had been there or that he had anything to do with her disappearance. Meanwhile, the woman that Dee had attacked offered to drop all charges from her attack, which 
he was looking up to 200 years in prison for if he would just confess to what happened to Mikkel. Police meet with Dee while he's being held in jail as well. He holds his innocence in Mikkel's case, though. However, on October 11th, 2000, he was found guilty for that attack on his neighbor, and he was sentenced to 187 and one-half years in prison. The Biggs family is asked to write to Dee while he's in prison as an emotional appeal tactic. They want to appeal to his emotions to see if that will bring out a confession. They're so sure they think that he's the one who did it. However, they got no response to their initial letters. But that didn't stop them. They continued to write to him to try and see if they can get that confession. They even started including things like pictures of Mikkel to appeal to his emotions. Finally, after a year, D finally wrote back. He says, quote, I want to make things right with you and your family, end quote. And that is in a letter specifically to Darren. With that, D is offering a face-to-face meeting with the bigs. Police jump at this opportunity and they encourage the meeting. They even train the bigs on how to gain a confession. The meeting happens, and at the meeting, Darren says that Dee was unemotional and actually ended up pleading with them for help. As Mikkel's mom puts it, Dee says that he was, quote, framed for everything he's ever done, and the police are out to get him, end quote. Well, Darren, at these pleas for their help, while they're looking for their daughter that they're pretty sure he abducted and has something to do with her disappearance, um, he lost his mind. And he, once again in our story, gets super angry, and he basically tried to jump through the glass of the visitation window. Um, And this got Dee very upset, of course, and you guessed it, the meeting came to an end. You have to remember, this would have been such a traumatic experience for Tracy and Darren. Uh, They both felt like Dee was their guy. Five years after Mikkel had gone missing, the family was desperate for closure. And if they couldn't get the closure from true justice and knowing what happened to her, they were going to honor her with a funeral. A funeral that included an empty white casket was held on the exact fifth anniversary of Mikkel's disappearance, January 2nd, 2004. Mikkel's case turned and remained somewhat cold until 2018. That's when, in Nina, Wisconsin, a dollar bill was found in a collection of money that had been used to purchase Girl Scout cookies. This dollar had a message written on it. The dollar said, quote, my name is Mikkel Biggs, kidnapped from Mesa, Arizona. I'm alive, end quote. The bill was then identified as having been made in 2009. And Nina police, of course, connected the bill to the case and they turned it into Mesa, Arizona police. However, this is the first time that those Nina police remembered hearing about Mikkel's case. The media, of course, also caught wind of all this goings-on, and the news spread like wildfire. Here's the issue, though. Not for lack of effort, but it was just too difficult to trace the origins of that dollar bill. It's changed so many hands in the nine years since it had been made, right? It was made in 2009, and this is 2018, so there's just no way to trace it. What's also concerning about the dollar is that the name Mikkel wasn't spelled correctly on it. Mikkel spelled her name M-I-K-E-L-L-E, 
but on the dollar, it was spelled M-I-K-E-L. To me, when I look at the writing, it does look like it would be a younger person's writing, but handwriting analysis did confirm that regardless of the age of the person who wrote it, it wasn't matching Mikkel's writing either. This event was another painful event for the family, but Kimber says she is grateful that in 2018, it got Mikkel's case and name back out there. Mikkel is still missing. Her case remains open and active with Mesa police. Dee's wife died in 2013, and that took anything that she may have known with her. But as we know on the Murder Diaries, Dee remains innocent in this case until proven guilty in a court of law. It should also be noted that Mikkel is believed to be deceased. She is yet to be found, and it's a reminder that anything, the worst, can happen in 90 seconds. We'll leave this episode with a quote from Kimber to azfamily.com. Mikkel was the best person I have ever known. Sassy, smart, funny, and kind. Her, at age 11, had more confidence and zest for life than I think I have ever had. She would have led such an amazing, successful life. If you or anyone you know may have information on Mikkel's disappearance, please contact Mesa Police at 480-644-2211. That's where we'll leave this episode. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on Instagram and TikTok, at the Murder Diaries pod at gmail.com and the Murder Diaries podcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. Until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.